Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 17 is where we left off last week. Tyler took us through John chapter 16 and we find ourselves in John chapter 17. Now I know you're going to roll your eyes and chuckle, but really, really this chapter, this chapter is one of the mountain peaks of all of the Bible. As you're finding John chapter 17, let me say that it's wonderful to have my dear friend here today, a local pastor friend who's on sabbatical, Mitch McGinnis. Where are you, Mitch? Just raise your hand. He's, in the, he's a back row guy now. He's a pastor sitting in the back row. I don't know if Juwan is with you, but Mitch is a dear friend of mine. He is the pastor here locally of Westminster Presbyterian Church over on Double Church's Road. We meet together regularly. We encourage each other in the Lord, and I'm just thankful for my Brother, I love you. I love your church. I love your family. I'm thankful for you, brother. I say often that Mitch is one of my favorite living Presbyterians, and he looks almost exactly like one of my favorite dead Baptists. He looks like Charles Spurgeon. So here's what you need to do today. Before you leave this place, I want you to find Mitch. You can't just scoot out of here, Mitch. You have to greet everybody. And not during the sermon, but at some point here towards the end of the service, I want you to Google image, Charles Spurge, then I want you to take it up and look at Mitch, and it's the same guy. <laughs> this chapter, John chapter 17, is a remarkable chapter. I think it's probably going to take us three weeks to get through. We're just going to look at the first five verses. It is often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the greatest prayer that we have recorded in the Bible. You know, sometimes we say to one another when we share something with a fellow Christian friend, we say things like, well, I'll be, I'll be praying for you, but you know, whether or not we really do or not, sometimes that's just kind of a social nicety. This is a passage here where we see that Jesus is first praying for himself, that's what we're going to look at today, then in the next passage, the next section, he's praying for his disciples, and then thirdly, at the end of the chapter, he's praying for us. And everything that he prays for the disciples, we can appropriate to ourselves because he essentially says that what he's praying for his disciples in the middle part of this chapter, he's also praying for all of his believers, which is us. So think of this for just a moment. Think about the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe. He is praying and has prayed this prayer for you. What a glorious thought. Okay, here's the occasion. We're at the end of the final discourse of Jesus. This is the night before he is betrayed. We're at the Last Supper and hours before his betrayal. The disciples are about to flee. He is about to be crucified. We are at the final moments of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And as we work through these five verses, I want us to, here's the outline. We're just going to give it to you up front, and I want you just to follow along. I want you to frame it along these lines, that these three things that I want us to observe in this text. First, I want us to see the greatness of God's glory. Secondly, the definitiveness of salvation. 
And third, the necessity of prayer. So first, the greatness of God's glory. Secondly, the definitiveness of salvation. And thirdly, the necessity of prayer. Let me read the text, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll dig in. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let me pray. And even as I'm praying, pray for me that the Lord would help me communicate well. Lord, thank you for this morning, for this day, for this text, for this group of people that are here, for your children that are gathered, and for those that may not yet know you that are with us today. We, we humble ourselves. We confess our neediness. Apart from you, Jesus says in John 15, we can do nothing. That's certainly my confession this morning. Help me communicate well. Help me be faithful to the text. I pray that your people would be encouraged and built up and edified. And if there are any friends with us today, and I'm sure that there are, that do not yet savingly know and trust in Jesus Christ, I pray that today you would give them eyes to see and a new heart so that they might believe. And as we come around your table and we remember Jesus' work for us, may it give us great joy. I pray this all, Lord, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want us to notice the greatness of God's glory in this text. Look at the first, few, first verse, in fact. Jesus says there, after there's this explanation by John that he spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven, so we know this is a prayer. This is the Son speaking to the Father, and he says there in the first few words that the hour has come. That's a theme all the way through John. That, that Remember a few times early on in the Gospel where Jesus would say, well, my hour has not yet come. He seemed to be withdrawing from the glorification that his disciples wanted him to present himself because he was telling them that his hour had not come. The point, I think, of this now is that we see we're, we're getting to this time when everything according to God's sovereign plan is about to come to pass. It's just a quick little thing that I want you to notice here is that implicit in this, in this statement by Jesus at the beginning of his prayer is that everything up to this point in his life, in fact, in all of human history, and since then, is according to and under the control of God. All of the timing of every human event happens according to the Lord's hour. So we should just take heart in that. Secondly, notice in the, the last part of verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come, and then look at this. He says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. You, 
I want you to notice now this this two-way interaction. The, The Father, Jesus is praying that the Father would glorify Him and that He would glorify the Father. Now let's admit something as we, as we think about this text. That, that word glory, God bring glory to yourself, it's, it can become part of Christian vernacular and it can become so common that it just feels like one of these lofty spiritual things that you say and it just sort of floats up there in the air and it's, it's hard to really understand or appropriate or live from the power and, and the reality of what's going on in those words. So I want us to think deeply and practically about just that last half sentence. What is Jesus praying here? What's he saying when he says, glorify your son? This is a prayer of the second person of the Trinity to the Father. He's saying, glorify me that I may glorify you. So let's look at that two-way street. He's asking that the Father would glorify him. What is he asking there? What's that mean? I take this to mean that Jesus is... In the moments before his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, he is asking the Father to bring him through what he's about to face, to bring him through his betrayal, to bring him through the mocking of the soldiers, to bring him through the crucifixion, to bring him through the tomb and through the resurrection and ultimately to the ascension. Now, we're going to touch on this at the very end, but that's remarkable. This is Jesus, who is the creator of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, very God and very human flesh, and he knows the future. He knows that these things are already going to happen, that they will take place. He knows that he is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, and yet he is asking the Lord to bring about what he knows is going to happen. That's what Jesus is asking when he says, Father, glorify your Son. And then he prays, Lord, help me to glorify you. How does the Son then glorify the Father? It's the other side of the street. He's asking that the Father glorify him, bring him through what he's about to face. But how does Jesus glorify the Father? By submitting to the plan of the triune God, by laying down his life. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier, says in Isaiah 53, and we're going to meditate on this when we receive communion in just a moment, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's speaking about the Father's intention of his work in the Son on the cross, that Jesus knows that he's willingly laying down his life so that the Father's plan of salvation may take place. This is what Jesus says earlier in his gospel in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus here is praying, he's asking that the Lord would help him glorify the Father. And how does the Son glorify the Father? By being obedient to the Father's plan, by willingly laying down his life on the cross and accomplishing something for the Father. What is he accomplishing? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us a window into what Jesus accomplishes on the cross in his laying down of his life. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 
Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus the Son, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. What is a priest? What's the Old Testament image of a priest? One that goes between God and the people of Israel, represents God to the people and represents the people to God. But the difference of these earthly Old Testament human priests is that they they were sinful men and they had to atone for their own sins. But Jesus is a better and perfect high priest. And he is saying that he had to become like us in every respect, yet without sin. What's the end of Hebrews 2.17? Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, if you've been around Crosspoint for any length of time, I hope you know this word propitiation. In fact, I'm going to make a bold statement that if you understand the concept of propitiation, you are at the very heart. Certainly you don't understand all that there is to understand about the gospel and the Bible. But if you understand propitiation, you have a very good understanding. You're at the very heart of the biblical message of the gospel. What this word means is that Jesus puts himself forward as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. He bears the wrath of God on behalf of his people, extinguishes it, satisfies it, and turns it into God's favor. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And that's what Jesus is praying here that the Lord would help him do, even though he knows that he is going to do it. He prays that God would help him and that he would glorify God by being the propitiation, the one who satisfies God's wrath, the one who upholds God's glory by taking the punishment that should have been ours. This is what Jesus is praying for in this prayer at the very beginning. And the result is that God, the triune God, would be glorified. Another way of thinking of this word glory is that He would be clothed in splendor. Now I want us to notice a few things about this glory. I want us to then think, okay, you might be saying, Brad, I agree with everything you're saying, but how, how does this help me on a Tuesday? Here's the question we need to ask. How is this God self-glorifying prayer good for us? How is this good news? Why is it so important to think of God's glory as being the center of all things? And why and how does the Christian need to live from it and for it? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. And the answer is, is that To see this is to see the universe and the Bible rightly through a God-centered lens. And what I mean by that is by, by our sinful nature, by our rebellion against God, it has caused us to make our first look, our first thoughts to be inward towards ourselves. We We instinctively, by nature, and even after we've been given a new nature and salvation and been born again, we still have to fight this old tendency to run everything through the prism and the view of ourselves as being the center of all things. But we we get this clue from Jesus here at the beginning of his prayer that actually the work of Christ, follow the logic now, the death, the sacrifice, the crucifixion, the work of Christ is first 
not primarily for us, but for God. To maintain, to uphold, to satisfy the glory of God. In fact, that's Jesus' prayer. Not merely that we would know our worth and our love, but that God's worth and God's glory would be maintained by the work, the sacrifice, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of the Son. That Not that we would feel primarily first satisfied, but that God would feel primarily and be satisfied by Jesus' work on the cross. I want to read to you a quote from John Piper, a, I'm sure a, a pastor that many of you have heard from, prolific author, has helped me understand these things over the years, and he wrote in his book called The Pleasures of God this thought, and let me, let me read it to you. And he says, unless we begin with God in this way, meaning this, this God-centeredness, this God-centeredness of the gospel, of seeing Jesus' work being first for God, And secondly, for us, but first for God. Unless we begin with God in this way, when the gospel comes to us, we will inevitably put ourselves at the center of it. We will feel that our value, rather than God's value, is the driving force in the gospel. And we will trace the gospel back to God's need for us, instead of tracing it back to the sovereign grace that rescues sinners who need God. Therefore, All his pain, meaning the sons, all his pain and shame and humiliation and dishonor served to magnify the Father's glory because they showed how infinitely valuable God's glory is that such a loss should be suffered to demonstrate its worth. Do you see that turn there? Do you see that logic? That what's happening on the cross isn't first primarily a statement of the Son or the Father's love or value of us, but that God needed, that Jesus needed, that only Jesus could satisfy the glory of God. And so the infinite worth of the perfect Son of God is the only thing that would satisfy God's glory and wrath against human rebellion. Do you see that? And if, the last thought here, and if the true biblical gospel always has God at the center then the response it demands must magnify Him and not us. And so what are we to take away from this? We are to take away from this is that the center of the universe, the center of this prayer, the center of all things, the center of the gospel is that God would be glorified and exalted through the work of the Son, and as an overflow, as a consequence of the glory and the holiness of God being maintained by the sacrifice of God the Son on the cross for the sin of people, and that His glory would be satisfied. And as an overflow of that, we are caught up in the redemptive, beautiful grace of salvation. If we see that first, then what that does is it causes us to magnify the grace of God. Oh, that He would love us. That we would be caught up in God glorifying Himself. And as a consequence of that, it results in the salvation of sinners like us. Friends, 
we need to view the gospel this way. If we're always sort of thinking of, oh, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. Yes, he does. Yes, he does if you're a Christian. But that love is a consequence of his love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father and the holiness of God. And when God's holiness is maintained through the work of Jesus on the cross, that is the best thing for every human soul. So as we begin this prayer, I want us to see the the greatness of God's glory. Secondly, the definitiveness of salvation. Let's look again at verse 2. Now these are deep waters here. Let's look what Jesus says. So he has prayed, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Then verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now this is a deep sentence. I want you to notice three things. First, notice the scope of Jesus' authority. It's over all flesh. I take that to mean clearly all mankind, every human soul. Jesus is in charge. He is supreme. He has all authority over all flesh. Secondly, notice the focus of his mission. It is limited in scope or application to all whom the Father has given him. So even though he has authority over all flesh, even though Jesus is control of every human, and and he's the creator of and in control of every human soul that's ever existed, the Father has given him a particular group of people, all whom the Father has given him. And then notice what Jesus gives to these people. I'll read the sentence again. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, so the Father has given the Son authority over everything, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, so the Father has given the Son a particular group of people. And what does the Son give to those people? He gives them eternal life. He doesn't give them the possibility or the potential, but the reality of eternal life. So what am I getting at? What is Jesus getting at here? Jesus is speaking about the definite nature of his work. His death, while sufficient to save the whole world, only saves those whom the Father has given him. And who are those that the Father has given him? All those and only those that turn and trust and lean upon and place their faith in Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says earlier in John chapter 6. We read this back in the fall of last year. John 6, verse 37, and then verse 44. Jesus is saying essentially the same thing in this discourse. After he has walked on water and then fed the multitudes. Verse 37, John 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So I want you to see what Jesus is saying here in John 17 is very much in line with what he says in John chapter 6. That there's a definitiveness. The Father has given the Son a particular group of people And Jesus is saying that he will, not that he might, but he will give eternal life 
to every single one of them. Not one more and not one less. Notice that there is a certainty to Jesus' words about salvation. Every single one that the Father gives him will come to him. At some point in their life, through the means of the gospel heard and responded to, that dead heart will become alive and will exercise faith in Jesus and be saved. We see this all throughout the Bible. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Luke records this about the ministry of the apostles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want you to notice, we've mentioned this many times before, that airtight chain of gospel grace. There's a those in view. Those are Christians. Those are the ones that God loves. And he predestines them. And he also calls them. Everyone that he predestines, he also calls. Not one more, not one less. And everyone that he calls, he also justifies. Not one more and not one less. And everyone that he justifies, he also glorifies. So there we see a kind of eternity to eternity, from eternity past to eternity future, an airtight chain, all that the Father gives the Son will make it all the way home. So salvation is not sort of up in the air, floating up there as something that might or might not be actualized. It is a certain definitive work of Jesus for his people. Now, What does this not mean, and what does this mean? Because I want you to see some tension in here. I want you to wrestle with this, and I want your heart and your mind to be expanded as you see the glory and the mystery and the beauty of God's grace and salvation. This does not mean, listen to me clearly, because I know where our minds go, we see this definitiveness, we see that there's this all that's given from the Father to the Son, and we conclude instantly, negatively, and we think, well, what, is it, what does it matter? If everything's sort of, sort of determined by God, then what does it matter? So what this does not mean, it does not mean that Jesus does not freely offer the gospel to all. He does. In fact, if you are in this room right now and you are not a believer, you should not, in fact, you cannot conclude from this that, oh, well, maybe I'm not part of that all, and so the gospel isn't for me. That's not the way Jesus handles his work, even though it's definitive. He does offer the gospel freely to all. Let me read to you the, a few verses before John chapter 6, where we read verse 37. And 44, where all that the Father gives me will come to me. The definitiveness there. Well, let's back up a few verses before John chapter 6, verse 25 through 29. And the crowd here, the scene, the occasion, the context, is Jesus is speaking to the crowds. And the crowds certainly, assuredly, were filled with unbelievers. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 25 through 29 to these unbelievers. Let me read in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So the context is Jesus has walked across the ocean or to the sea, the the lake. It's confounded them. How did you get here? The miracle is before their very eyes. It's obvious. In verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, this crowd full of unbelievers, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus essentially there is preaching the gospel to them. He's saying, look, don't, don't rely on your own works. Don't, don't go for that food that you do. Go for the food, reach for the food, trust in the food that the Lord provides that endures to eternal life. Then they said to him, what must we do to, do the, to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this, listen to verse 29, this is the work of God. And he's preaching this verse to unbelievers mostly, that you believe in him who he has sent. So we got to put those two things together and we have to be comfortable with that biblical tension. That God the Father has given the Son a people. And every one of those people in God's infinite mystery and sovereign grace will come to the Son. It's guaranteed. It's airtight from eternity past to eternity future. All those that He's predestined, He has called. And all those that He has called, He has justified. And all those that He's justified, He has glorified, past tense, even though your glorification is in the future. But Jesus here preaches the gospel and offers and calls the crowd to repentance. What are we to make of this? I'm going to lean on my brother J.C. Ryle, another great dead English pastor that Mitch McGinnis does not look like. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s, Anglican bishop. And he says about these verses, I believe I read this when we looked at this passage back in the fall, but he says, when our, listen to this, listen to Ryle's logic and listen to how comfortable Ryle is with the mystery and the beautiful tension of the sovereign grace of God that is definitive, but yet calls all to repent. Ryle says, when our Lord says, of this verse, when our Lord says, the Son of Man shall give you the meat, or the food, that endureth to everlasting life, he appears to me to make one of the widest and most general offers to unconverted sinners that we have anywhere in the Bible. The men to whom he was speaking were, beyond question, carnal-minded and unconverted men. Yet, even to them, Jesus says, the Son of Man shall give unto you. Listen to this last paragraph. To me, it seems an unmistakable statement of Christ's willingness and readiness to give pardon and grace to any sinner. It seems to me to warrant ministers in proclaiming Christ's readiness to save anyone and in offering salvation to anyone if only he will repent and believe the gospel. And friends, what Ryle said back in the late 1800s is true today in 2022, that Jesus is calling you, and it is a real offer, and it is the only offer that stands. In fact, it is the offer that is the power of God unto salvation. It is an offer that can create and does create what it commands. This is the state of every human soul. We are dead in our sins. We cannot exercise faith. We need God to move upon our souls. The gospel is preached. It hits our dead hearts. And as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, it makes us alive. And it brings a dead sinner all the way home. There's a definitiveness to salvation. So that's what it does not mean. 
Definitiveness of salvation does not mean that we are not commanded and responsible and obligated to respond to the gospel. You are, dear friend, if you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus. The only thing, the only thing between you and Christ is your own stubbornness. And the good news of the gospel is he can and delights in overcoming the stubbornness of a human soul. What does it mean? Well, it means that if you're a believer, Jesus has accomplished it all for you. You are not saved by your agreement or your righteousness. He did the work. You were dead. He made you alive. He gave you faith. He awakened your soul. Therefore, all the glory and all the praise goes to Him. Back to the first point, the, great, the, first point, the greatness of God's glory in salvation. Humility and joy are the posture of the heart that sees this and dwells on this. And it also means, and I've alluded to this, is that you're going to make it Friends, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian. We've alluded to it in prayer several times already that though the world rages against us, if you are a believer, all that the Father has given the Son, they won't just be saved in time. They will make it all the way home. You're going to make it. You're going to make it if you're a Christian because of the definitiveness of salvation. One final thing before we land this plane and look at the last point, the necessity of prayer, which is just a short thought. Look at verse 3 again. Notice what Jesus says about salvation. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, we could spend a lot of time dwelling on that verse. We won't. But Jesus, notice what Jesus says about salvation. It's not not the, the accoutrements or the blessings or the good things that we experience in heaven, as wonderful as all of those things may be. But eternal life, our inheritance, is knowing Christ. It's being with Him. So here's an analogy, and it's not a perfect analogy, but it's helpful, I think, to help us understand what's going on on some level in verse 3. Think about a a man and a woman who are really, really in love. And they're just getting out, and they're just starting their marriage, and, you know, they're professing their love for one another, and they've got all these options about things that they could get and buy. And they say to one another, because they're really in love and they really mean this, that they look at each other and they say, Honey, I don't need anything. I don't need a big house. I don't need a good job. I don't need a good salary. I don't need anything. I don't need a new kitchen. I don't need a double oven. I don't need anything. All I need is you. And we know that when a young couple is really, really in love, they mean that. They mean that. They don't need anything. I'll live anywhere with you. I'll go anywhere with you. I don't need anything. But as long as I'm with you, I'll be happy. We understand that sentiment on a human romantic level. Well, I think that's what's going on here. Of course, there's nothing romantic in the sense of salvation, but there is this kind of beautiful bride and groom relationship that even the Bible alludes to. Salvation, friends, is not merely what we get in heaven as if it's some sort of street of gold or some sort of blessing or some sort of riches, but it is Christ. It's Christ. I think of that old hymn, Give Me Jesus. Give Me Jesus. If I have Jesus, I have all that I need. And I just confess, can I confess something before we land this plane on the last point? That, that's an easy thing to preach and that's a harder thing to live from because our hearts are torn by all the things that we want, even in eternity. But Jesus is the prize of the Christian. And finally, the necessity of prayer. I just, I'm, I'm struck by this all through this chapter. I'm just going to touch on it, but I want this to be a kind of theme through 
the next few Sundays as we look at John chapter 17. Let me read verses 4 and 5 again. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's saying, Lord, take me through the floodwaters of your wrath and return me to the state of pre-incarnation glory that I had with you. Here's what I'm just struck by. Is we need to notice something very important that might not immediately jump off the page to us. And it is that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. He knew all that would happen, but he asked the Lord to bring it about. Have you ever felt that dilemma? And if you've been in a church like our church that believes in the utter, exhaustive sovereignty of God in all things, have you ever felt that understandable tension and dilemma between God's sovereignty and the need and use of prayer? If God is sovereign, then why should we pray? Have you ever felt that? Well, evidently, Jesus, who I'm going to venture has a better understanding of the nature of God than we do, didn't feel that tension. Jesus didn't feel that way. Jesus knows what the future holds. Jesus knows that he's the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. And Jesus didn't feel any dilemma. Apparently, for Jesus, prayer is necessary. And I end with that. If Jesus felt that prayer is necessary, how much more should we feel that prayer is necessary? The Lord invites us to pray. One practical way that this might work out, because I don't want to just drop that on you like, okay, boys and girls, we should pray more. Now let's take communion and feel, and just all wallow in what bad prayers we are. That's not what I want to do. I'm not not here to scold you. I'm here to just to say, to invite us to pray. One, One way that we pray in this church is through the resumption that we're going to start tonight and through the fall, through our Sunday night prayer services. As Tyler mentioned, we're going to preach through. We're going to take one minor prophet a week. There are 12 minor prophets. And we're going to spend one week, preach a short sermon. A sermonette is what we're calling it. Sermonettes for Christianettes. We're going to preach a short sermon on a minor prophet. And then we're going to sing some hymns. And then we're going to spend the balance of our time on Sunday nights praying for one another. This would be a wonderful way for us to cultivate this truth in our own personal lives and in the life of our church. The necessity of prayer. Lord, help us to pray. Let's come now to the table and ask the Lord to meet us that we would remember Jesus' work. And in just a moment as we take this cup and as we take this bread... Let's remember that this is commemorating the work of the Son to glorify the Father and the work of the Father to glorify the Son and the definitiveness of His salvation for all that believe. If you are not yet a Christian, we're really glad that you're here, but you should not come to the table and receive this meal with us. You should not do this, not because we're trying to single you out or make you feel bad, but because we don't want you to do something that you don't yet believe. This is for believers. This is 
not just a religious or ritual rite that we do. This is us as believers in Jesus saying by taking this bread that we are trusting in the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross, that was, that was sacrificed on the cross for us, that he bore our sins. And by drinking the cup, we're saying that his blood is a, it's a new covenant that God has established a covenant of grace that he will deal with his people according to Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' work, Jesus' abiding of his perfect law and not our own. And so if you don't yet believe that, it wouldn't be appropriate for you to receive this meal. But if you are a Bible-believing Christian, whether you're a member of this church or a member of another church that preaches the same gospel as we do, you are welcome to come to this table and receive these elements with us. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to come and lead us in a song. And during that song, as you are able, the ushers will be around the tables, and they will serve us. And as you are able, when you're ready, take the cup and the bread and return to your seats, and then Tyler will lead us to contemplate and remember and think about the work of Christ on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage Thank you for these verses that we've just begun to mine. Thank you for this beautiful prayer. As we receive the Lord's Supper this morning, may we see the glory of God and salvation, the God-centeredness of the cross as an expression primarily of your worth and then ours, not the other way. May we see the airtight definitiveness of Jesus' work. He did it all. And may it call us to prayer. I pray you do this all in Jesus' name. Amen.